Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Unpack Everything, Science Education Reform in the Real World. I'm Sam Pinter. Today, Dan and I are chatting with Tara McGill. Tara is an adjunct instructor at Northwestern School of Education and Social Policy. She has also played an integral role in the Next Generation Science Storylines Project and the development of the Open Syed Middle School and High School Curricula, where she led the development of several units. She was also a facilitator and member of the design team for the Next Generation Science Exemplar System for Professional Development, commonly known as NGSX. Previously, she has taught ninth grade biology, developed curriculum materials with the Ag in Progress Partnership, researched honeybee biology and behavior, and served as the director of informal science for the Illinois Science Teaching Association. Tara is coming to us with years of experience in the field and is a wealth of knowledge about using phenomena and storylines to teach science. Let's jump into our conversation. Tara, we're so excited to have you here with us today. Could you start off by sharing a little bit about who you are and what you do? Uh, thanks so much, Sam. I'm so happy to be here. My name is Tara McGill, and I am an adjunct instructor at Northwestern University. And I've also designed several storylines in many, many different grade levels. Awesome. We're going to ask you a few questions um, to get a general feel of what storylines and phenomena are first, and then we're going to dive much deeper into this. Yeah, we did this really smart thing where in the episode title, we put two terms that not everyone might be familiar with. So we're going to grill you about those a little bit first, Tara, and thanks for joining us. So the first question is, what are phenomena? Right. So I really love to kind of start this thinking about phenomena with like just a super quick activity. So I'm going to ask you guys, um, I'm going to say a couple statements, and I want you guys to tell me which one you guys think is the phenomenon. So the first statement is all things with mass are pulled toward one another by gravity. And the other statement is when we pick up a ball and let it go, it fell to the ground. So which one of those is the phenomenon? The first one or the second one? Well, the, the first one sounds really sciencey. So maybe that? What about you, Sam? Um, I think the second one seems like something that I might know about from my life. I don't know if that means it's a phenomena or not, but it seems like something I might know some stuff about. Yeah. So the first one does sound super sciencey. That one is the science idea. And the second one is something we can see in the world. You can visualize somebody, okay, picking up a ball, letting it go, and seeing it hit the ground. That's either a vent or something happening, something you can see, taste, smell, touch, hear. Those things are phenomena. And so instructional materials, we want to find phenomena, something in the world, and the kids are exploring and figuring out the science ideas behind it. So in this case, it's that science idea of gravity, where you know, all things with mass are, are pulled towards one another. And Tara, I guess as you talk about that, one thing that strikes me is that such a simple example you gave, like a ball falls toward the earth. When I see phenomena that obviously shares a root with phenomenal, I, so I picture something really 
big and exciting and maybe kind of surprising. Can phenomena be that? Do they have to be that? Can they be uh, honestly kind of boring, like the example you gave? <laughs> like what, you, you know, like where's that territory lot? Right. You know, I'm so glad you asked that question, Dan, because um, to be an instructionally productive phenomena in the classroom, it definitely does not have to be phenomenal, like the super big thing or something super crazy. In fact, those sometimes can actually go against us as instructors for multiple reasons. One, sometimes something that seems like super cool, like, oh my gosh, my kids are so interested in it. But it's actually the science ideas are kind of off from where we actually like want the students to go. Like the science ideas, we're actually trying um, to have them figure out. And secondly, we have also found that sometimes the most common things are actually, when you really push on it, the most intriguing. For example, there's this one unit that I love, and it starts off with this smell. And it starts off um, in one corner of the room. And then slowly, some students start to smell smell it, and then other students, and more students, and more students, and they were like, "Wait, why? What's going on? Like, is this smell like? It seems like it's like traveling. Like, then what actually is the smell? We don't see it. We just can sense it. We can just smell it, and and gets into all these sorts of things. And then kids start to come up with other questions, and then they start to think about things in their own life. They're like, "Yeah, it's like cookies. Like, if I open up the oven, I can smell them really fast. But then, if I'm upstairs, sometimes I can smell the cookies. Like, I know my mom is making cookies upstairs, and it's like these things that happen all the time. Just like smelling something across the room. But then there's all these different patterns that happen, and the smell gets stronger. And then all of a sudden, nobody can smell it, but somebody walks into the room, and then they can smell it. So there's all these different things that happen um, with it. And then in this case too, it gets at the particular nature of matter. And, you know, there's just so many interesting things that come from it. something that's so common. And sometimes that's also powerful because then kids feel and can explain something that happens every day in their own life. And it's when that happens where then they go home and they're so excited to, you know, tell their grandma or their baby brother about, you know, what they just learned and something that they're experiencing it just can be such a such a powerful learning experience. So I guess one thing I'm hearing you saying, Tara, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that it's it's almost like some of the mundane things we see in everyday life, which may not seem all that shocking or surprising on the surface actually have some things underneath that when we start to think about a little bit, we realize are way more complicated and way more interesting than we might've thought like at surface level. Right. Absolutely. And there's an art to kind of, I want to say like milking that seemingly common or mundane experience to then kind of draw out the interest and really kind of push. I'm like, what really is weird about this? Like, let's, we pause right here. This is weird. Like our little like bits of like cookies, like going up our nose. What is like, what is really going on right now? And that, that, that was a great visual Tara. Thank you for that. <laughs> well, it's even worse because I have little ones at home too. And I smell diapers and I'm like, oh man. <laughs> What is up going up my nose right now? But (laughs) (laughs) So I heard you say that there's kind of an art to to picking a phenomena that is going to make students ask all these types of questions. Can you walk us through how you go about picking a phenomena? Like, how do you choose if something's good or bad or is going to lead to questions or not? Yeah, this is what a great question. So I feel like I want to put the word good in air quotes, (laughs) because like what 
first, like, what does good even really mean? And one thing we want Phenomena to do are we want it to engage students. It's absolutely like pique their interest. And again, it's not just sometimes that's, you know, you just say, oh, is this interesting? And like dropping a ball and every kid would say, no, that's not interesting. It's boring. So you got to, you know, put it into some context and like, you know, see if you can help pinpoint some things that might pique their interest about that experience. The other thing is we want it to sustain their interest and intrigue and also, and just most importantly, align properly to the science ideas that when you probe the right place of a certain phenomenon, you're going to get you know, kids to figure out the science it is that you're actually targeting. So something could be super interesting, sustain it and just be amazing and have all of your class just like, you know, googly eyes. But if it doesn't get to the right science idea, then you might as well just throw it out the window because it's not going to actually help them figure out the right territory. And so that work, that alignment is really, really, really critical. And so we spend a lot of time doing this process we call unpacking the science ideas to kind of really figure out what are those little nuggets that need to be, you know, nuggets of ideas that need to be figured out. And then we kind of can kind of it's almost like as we're doing that, then different kind of uh, phenomena kind of bubble up and like, oh, yeah, I remember this. Oh, that would be cool. Well, I wonder if that would align. And then you kind of probe further. So it's like this like push and pull back and forwards between the, the generating of just like brainstorming cool phenomena or interesting things. And then checking against those science ideas. And the phenomena too, we really want it to be something that like, we really want as like ideally everybody in the class to be like, I really don't know how that works. I can't really explain it. Because if there is like half your class is like, oh, yeah, I've learned that. I, I know how that works and feels really like, oh, this is obvious. And then you have half class that it would not, you know, th- that's not, you know, that's not great either. Right. So you really it's a way to kind of level the whole playing field to really have 100% of your class to kind of like lean in. Maybe some of them do know some of the science ideas, but there's always new things and always new pieces and ways to, you know, go further. And there's always holes in there so that, you know, you really want to make it something that's intriguing for everybody. And I'm, I'm really intrigued by the idea that there's, there could be something out there that like no student could fully explain but before we do that, you, you mentioned this word unpack, and um, that's in the name of our podcast without any explanation whatsoever. Um, c- could you talk a little bit about what you mean when you talk about unpacking? Yes. So I'm really talking about like reading in between the lines. It's like the things that, you know, you might say like a word like gravity and a lot of people think like, okay, yeah, I know what gravity is, but it's like, wait, but, but what's, what are there all the other like little things in between and underneath and on the sides and all on the crevices that really are behind that idea. And so that's kind of like this unpacking. It's like, let's really like pull out like I, you know, I we're packing for a, a family trip right now. And it's like, you know, you're putting all this like stuff in the suitcase and look like this tidy little suitcase. And it's like, got this like nice, you know, thing. And, and then, but like, if you open it up, it's like, oh man, all these, like, I got these shirts and I have this. And then I pull up the little teeny zippers and then we have all our socks. And then you open up that really tiny zipper and you got, you know, your toothbrush and all these other little things all in the crevice. And so it's like, there's different layers and it's just kind of like pulling all of that stuff out so that you can really get all the pieces that you need to put together some complex idea actually like gravity. 
And the way you talked about that, that, that suitcase analogy is great. That almost implies that there's some sort of order to it too. Like it's not just random disconnect ideas related to gravity. Uh, yeah, that's absolutely right. So, you know, I guess going back to that suitcase, right, it's like, and I even got this new thing to help me be more organized. Have you guys ever seen those luggage, like mini, I don't, there, there's a word for them, I can't really remember what it is, but it's like those mini little cases that you like put all this stuff inside. Yeah. Oh, yeah, like the little boxes. Yeah. <laughs> so I always thought these were just so gimmicky. And then I had somebody say, no, they're life changing. And it was true. And so, yeah, you, you know, you've got like your, I've got like a bag of more like my undergarments. And then I've got my stuff for, you know, if there's a pool, I've got like, okay, my swimsuit and my swim cover up and like a towel or whatever. And like another thing. And it helps you like stay organized. So yeah, right. It, there. It, so unpacking is definitely like that. There are these layers and there's, and also a logic to be like, what makes sense? I need to go first and second and kind of, you know, moving all those around and even thinking about just like learning progressions and like in ideas and how different ideas might unfold naturally, especially if you're trying to figure them out or learn them for the first time. There's definitely, you know, maybe some orders that make more sense than others. And so trying to put those, you know, in sequence and, you know, think about, gosh, oh, we need this idea before that. As you talk about this this ordering of them, um, I think this kind of gets us to the second idea in our title, which we haven't mentioned yet. Um, you, you know, I would consider you to be one of the progenitors of this approach of storylines, and so that's kind of the sequencing. Um, but like, what is a storyline besides the order we do things in? Yeah, so storylines are an instructional model that support coherence from the student's perspective. So it's like, okay, what the heck does coherence from the student's perspective mean? Um, <laughs> so we've like for a long time been building instructional models that are coherent or make sense from the teacher's perspective. And so like this time we're talking about the ordering and sequencing and like what we're learning and why we're learning it is logical or like makes sense to the teacher. But storylines are different in that well, they should definitely make sense to the teacher. So that doesn't go away. But they should also make sense to the students. And I'm even my push the envelope a little further and just just go something further in that we don't just want kids to know what they're learning and why so not just be like told like okay so if you can say back this is what I'm learning and why because I told it to you that's a, a good step but that's not I don't think maybe the end of it we want them to actually participate in figuring out what the class should learn and why and I think this part is critical. Really, this is the hard work of being a scientist. And I, you know, and I'm guilty of this too. I feel like, you know, in my previous teaching, we so often, we rob the kids from that, that thinking, that critical work. And in a previous life, I was in graduate school. So if it's okay, I'm going to take like a slight tangent. Please. But in graduate school... I studied honeybee brains and we had graduate student assistants and stuff like that to help us 
with our experiments with like the hands-on piece, like actually, you know, maybe like collecting bees and, you know, doing all the work of dissecting brains or whatever that task may be, that hands-on learning, like that's not the hard part of being a scientist. That stuff, you know, and I feel like in sometimes in science education, we kind of flag like, oh, they're doing hands-on learning. They're being scientists. That's what it is. And hard work is actually the time I would spend with my advisor being like, I don't know what, what, like why we got these results. What does that mean? What does that make sense? And then we'd bring it to our whole lab table and I'd say, and I'd say, okay, here's what we're thinking, but I'm not sure about this. And I don't really know where to go next. Like, what should we be asking next? And like, what experiment should we do next to try to figure out the next piece? And I get feedback from them and we'd kind of go back and forth and we'd argue a little bit. Then I might have to go back to like, my journals and like read some stuff and like I don't know about that maybe look at me like look into that and so like I didn't go back and then I come back to the next meeting like that thinking that is the richness of being a scientist and you know my advisor's job was to kind of to help me in that process that's when I needed his assistance that's when I needed his you know brain who could see like a bigger picture could say well you know okay remember our whole vision is this our main question is around you know xyz in the bee's brain and like your piece is like here figuring out here's like how can we work together to figure out blah, blah, blah. like and that's what we rob kids of and i just i feel like sometimes again like we just false flag the like oh okay they're you know having their hands on physical things or doing that experiment and that is not what it really means and i feel like uh, this is just my personal like well maybe mini soapbox i feel like today's day and age more than ever we need kids to be thinking like true scientists. We need them to feel capable of, I can figure something out. I don't have to get the answer. I feel like confidence is kids, and in kids is just thinking. Like we need to believe in them. We need to believe that they can do this. We need to believe they can figure stuff out on their own. And it's not our job to teach them all, like tell them all the things, to tell them what to know. Our job is to help them think critically and be able to solve things for themselves and figure things out for themselves and think for themselves. So I just, my heart just goes on. I just, you know, I see also like the pull on screens, like our kids are so used to getting Insta answers. They're so used to this rapid, rapid thing, like slowing them down, making them think hard. And it's not easy. (laughs) I'm not saying this is easy, but I am saying it is so worth it. And it is so needed in this time. So it sounds like the students are doing a lot of the heavy lifting when there's a storyline involved. I'm wondering though, how do we make sure as teachers that all of these science ideas that we have to cover or we have to get throughout the year actually get accomplished when we're letting the kids kind of lead the way and do do the heavy lifting of that work? How does that all play out in the classroom? Yeah, and I'm just, gosh, I don't know. I think the real answer is, yeah, we just, we can't, like, we can't do all the things. And I'm also going to a little bit like double down and say, and that's okay. And it's worth it. And they're going to be able to figure out all those other pieces that they need if they can do the thinking and the reasoning and the logic part well. So I don't think we have to be afraid if we can't get to all the ideas. 
Um, and I also think there is a learning curve. So I think the, you know, the beginning, it's so slow, but as students and teachers get used to this, it's going to go faster and you will be able to get to more things than you would have the first or second time you go through a storyline or go through this new approach. But as both the students are more used to it and the teacher, you will be able to cover more. But I think, again, we have to look at and say, is covering more the be-all, end-all? Are we going to sacrifice that critical thinking and and those pieces in just because we didn't get to a certain piece of the cell, you know, that we wanted to. So I just, yeah, there are trade-offs and I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It's not not easy, but we keep hearing back more and more that the more students really engage in this kind of um, learning that in the end, they, it is better off. Yeah. It sounds like this is mimicking a lot. Like you mentioned with your experience, with your research, how this is actually done in the field and students are getting experience with that in elementary school and middle school and high school and are really learning how to do science. I'm wondering if that's where this process of teaching science in this way, was it born out of the research world or how did this storyline anchoring phenomenon stuff come to fruition? Like, where did it come from? Oh, gosh. Well, that's, I feel like, a super big question. Um, But yeah, absolutely. It came from, you know, research, decades and decades of research. And there have been, you know, new approaches in science, you know, throughout the time. You know, there there was like open inquiry, like in the 70s, right, where it was kind of like choose your own adventure and anything and and that's not what this is either right we've we've tried you know so many different things over the time and you know when I was in school it was I do we do you do like I'm gonna do something we're gonna practice it together and then you're gonna head and you know I'm releasing you now to do it on your own and then you're gonna show me what you've learned so there's been new you know new approaches all throughout time this is different in that it really tried to take the framework for K-12 science education. That really was kind of a culmination of um, decades of research. Like, okay, let's look at back at everything we've learned so far and try to think about what is this new framework, not for what we're teaching, but for how we're teaching science. And that really laid the foundation for now what we're using, the, the next generation science standards. And so then a new group then took what was in the, the framework with this new approach and then, you know, put it into standards. And I, I also want to say, you know, the storylines approach isn't, you know, the only instructional model that can realize the vision that was laid out in the framework. It is one approach, though, that we have found and now have done some research with and finding that students, you know, it's a tough shift. But once it happens that, you know, we're seeing students just really thrive and, and do well in the kind of science practices that, that the framework really is trying to get, like modeling, they're able to model in, you know, so much better ways. And, and that kind of like critical thinking piece is, is so important. Could you tell us a little more about how you, once you choose a phenomenon and you've thought like this might be good to use, how does it get turned into a storyline? Oh, okay, sure. All right. So basically, if you've got this phenomena that you're doing, like, okay, one would be an example of like, okay, let's say there's this mountain and you find this like mountain actually is like getting bigger. They took another measurement and like, it seems to actually be adding height. The next thing that you would do is like, you would take your phenomenon and 
you would basically construct like what is that explanation for like why is this mountain like growing so you would actually kind of create a product called kind of like just basically you're you're trying to like make a answer to it but as a kid would explain it so not like using all like the fancy teacher language but we really would okay well what would that look like and what would kids if they really understood why this is happening what would they be saying and so you're going to try to pull all the little nuggets of your science ideas that you've been working with and get them all out on paper. And usually maybe it's you're drawing a model or maybe you're, you know, doing some of their like explanation, like with drawings and maybe a model too. And, you know, and getting people to look at them like, okay, does this make sense? And, you know, if somebody's like, wait, but why is that part in there? So filling in all those gaps. And then we take that product and then we kind of go back and look at all the little science ideas that we used to put that together. And we kind of map that back to our unpacking. And so we're really looking to say like, okay, does this phenomenon actually get us kids? Would that actually get us to have kids be figuring out what we hope they would be figuring out and using those ideas? And sometimes they'll find like, oh shoot, that phenomenon actually like takes us a totally different direction or actually, whoa, that phenomenon uses actually high school science ideas and we really need to stick to middle school science ideas or maybe it's like oh it's actually going at a fifth grade level it's too like it's not hard enough so we're really kind of going back and forth and trying to trying to flesh out like what would that answer be so that would be the very next step so it's like a back and forth of like we think we have a good phenomenon but we need to try to build out that explanation and does it match up and once you find one that is that perfect match that gets to all the science ideas that you wanted to get to, what's the next process like? How do you build out the storyline of all the lessons that that teachers would get in a unit? Yeah. So basically what we've done then, right, when we've created this, like what we'll call like a student product or, or that like explanation, is like that's like our ending point. So really like we're kind of st- like kind of like understanding by design, we're starting with the end in mind. So we know where we're headed, but now what were all those little pieces that got us there? And so that's when we, you know, we do several different things. One, we definitely want to test like some phenomena with kids. So we'll, we'll do that. And even, even in a group of like other people, we'll kind of see like, okay, if you had a phenomena, like what questions would you be asking? And what different initial ideas or initial models would you come up with at first? And then we would kind of be looking at all those and be like, okay, like, let's try to figure out like what might make them next, like what might make sense to kind of like start to put these together. So we might come up with like, okay, it might make sense to first talk about, you know, how maybe different like plates move. And then we got to figure out how, you know, another thing might happen. So we'll kind of like create these chunks and then kind of slowly start. I kind of do, I call them like a skeleton and I kind of like go through like a, I call it like a quick and dirty, like question, what would that like little science idea I get? And just kind of do that fast and kind of then reorganize. It's kind of like a big puzzle of like, okay, what's the next question that would come out of that? What would I be asking next? And then could that flow into the next thing? And then can we kind of weave together this story that eventually then kids kind of put together like certain, um, maybe like there's like five lessons and we'll figure out a really big piece. And then we'll, you know, take another five lessons and we'll flood another piece. And then ultimately to like put all those pieces together at the end. Wow. Thanks. Thanks for explaining how we take this real world thing and build out this example and then somehow create lessons based on student questions. 
Yeah. And it really is like an iterative process. So as much as we love to, you know, we have like a really nice diagram, like this is the process, but you'll notice that <laughs> there's a bunch of arrows that go back and forth because it is, kind of like, oh, wait, oops, shoot, that didn't work. And then we might get the first five lessons and we're like, okay, so now if we test this with, you know, a bunch of kids, do we kind of feel like this is what they're asking here in the beginning and just go kind of back and forth, back and forth. Yeah. Until, until we get the best flow that we can. What would you say to a teacher who's more hesitant to try out this way of teaching with storylines? Is there any advice or encouragement that you'd give them? Yeah. So first, I just would want to say, oh, it is so daunting. Like, it is so hard to kind of like surrender and give up control and let let the classroom together. You know, we really like to say like, okay, in a, in a in storylines, it's classroom culture where we are figuring out the science ideas. We are figuring out where we're going at each step and we're putting together the science ideas over time. And before that was really like the teacher was going to kind of show you where to go. And like that was the teacher's role. Their role was, you know, that instructor. Um, and really we're kind of shifting that role of the teacher to be like more of a guide. So it's really hard to shift. But repositioning yourself in the classroom as a learner with the students, one, it kind of does help to take the pressure off a little bit. It's not like they're not going to you for all the answers when it's like, wait, we're trying to figure this out for themselves. I can go to my fellow classmates and to myself to try to figure this out. So it's not all on the instructor. And the second thing is when the class, you know, when they shift to really figuring things out for themselves, they don't want to go back either. So they're like, no, no, don't tell us the answer. Like, that's what we're finding. Teachers report back and be like, no, my kid's like, I'd be like, wait, let me just tell you what. And they're like, no, 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 we can figure it out. Good book in us. You know, they're like, they push back because they're like, no, we, we don't. Now, this has been so much fun. Now we're really in it. And we feel like scientists. We are scientists. We are the ones with the teacher in the driver's seat. It's not just letting the kids like go off on themselves, but it's right. It's, it's that togetherness. And so that can just be such a fun and refreshing way of teaching. And we're just finding so such great feedback from the field about all the, the positive experiences that teachers are, are having with students that really are long, you know, lifelong lasting experiences. Yeah, yeah, I, I can speak to my experience a little bit too, and say that it's hard sometimes to get students to buy in. But it's it's really exciting to see students getting excited about their own ideas versus, you know, I tell them something and then Maybe it connects with them, maybe it doesn't, and then we move on to the next thing. Um, it's just so much more satisfying. And so as you describe this process, Tara, I imagine what comes out of it is something that looks very different from, say, a traditional textbook. You know, I've, I've had an opportunity to serve on some committees that look at stuff, and I don't remember seeing anything like this among the, you know, the offerings we're usually given. So what evidence is there that, teaching this way, structuring units this way actually works, that this is something that would be beneficial to students? Yeah, that's a great question. So a little disclaimer, what I'm, I, what I can share is not exhaustive of the research out there. You know, using storylines in classrooms as a model for curriculum design really hasn't been out for that long. Unfortunately, we haven't seen a group of kids like use storylines from kindergarten through 12th grade. So there is a lot we don't know, but we do know some things. So having said that, let's jump in. So what's written in the framework. So like if we go back to like the framework first 
K-12 science education that all of like NGS is written off of. That framework, which I'll argue that storylines fully realizes, is based on decades of research. And so I'm going to go back, like way back, even before like the framework was written, you might have heard of like constructivism or like constructivist theory of learning and like, whoa, what the heck does that mean? So basically the constructivist theory of learning basically means that it's like the idea that learners construct knowledge for themselves, like each learner individually, actually, and socially constructs meaning as he or she learns. And so this idea has several important implications. I'm going to highlight a couple. So the first thing that I want to highlight is because of this, what a learner thought previously matters. Like it matters to you actually kind of constructing knowledge and, and it matters, you know, for your, your own internal framework or your own like models that you have in your head. So we'll see this come alive in storylines, for example, in like, sometimes teachers will say like, wait, initial ideas, like you're asking for their ideas, like their initial models. Well, like they don't know this yet. Like, why are we asking? Like, why do we even care what their, you know, model for why a population changes over time? Like they don't, they, we haven't taught them evolution yet. Like they don't know anything. Like we know they don't know that, but having like an understanding of what kids think. And, you know, there's lots of different curriculum than this, right? Like KWL charts, there's a lot of things of like, why do we care about what kids are? It's because it really matters to their constructing their knowledge about the model of evolution. Also, research has shown that motivation is a key component in learning. Not only is it the case that motivation helps learning, it's actually essential for learning. So unless we know the reasons why, we might not be very involved in actually using the knowledge that might be instilled in us. And so thinking about if you went and you like tapped on a kid's shoulder, like, hey, why are you doing that thing on your paper? And if they just say, well, I'm doing it just because like, that's what my teacher told me to do. And like, that's what the paper says I'm supposed to do. That's not good enough. We need to understand like, it's really so important for kids to know why they're doing what they're doing in a classroom. And I might argue one of the best ways to do that is to actually have them be a part of the decision to do that experiment and to, you know, to be a part of why we're asking the question we're asking right now, or why we're going to ask like the next thing or do the next thing. And so that is just so, so, so important. Another thing is, and I'm going to actually read a quote from a paper called Experiments in Teaching. And this is from the, the Journal of Science Education. It's, and it's the crucial action of constructing meaning is mental. It happens in the mind. Physical actions, hand-on experiences may be necessary for learning, especially for children, but it is not sufficient. We need to provide activities which engage the mind as well as the hands. And I think this is so critical, especially because I think a lot of times you'll see in curriculum materials like bugs, buzzwords, like, oh, it's like hands-on and get to do labs. And it's like, that's great. I am not, like, I'm not saying we need, like, we don't need to do those things, but that is not enough. That is not what this means. It's just not getting your hands on things. It, if we don't engage the mind in that critical thinking of putting the pieces together, kids are still not going to be constructing knowledge. And so you're going to see in storylines things like scientist circles and actually a lot of time devoted for kids to really wrestle with these things, wrestle with evidence, putting the pieces together themselves, not by the teacher. And it's so hard to, to forget this. And sometimes you feel like, oh my gosh, my kids, they don't want to talk or they don't want to do these things. But it, it is a, this is the art of teaching. 
this is where the expertise and the knowledge of like being a good teacher really comes into play. And it and it's that experience and and like that just craft where you can get kids to talk and and do that that hard thinking. Those are just like some of these like a, a small piece of like storylines do all this and more. They really a place where students with their teacher can say we are figuring out the science ideas, we are figuring out where to go at each step, and we are putting together the science ideas over time. So Brian Reiser, Michael Novak, Bill Penu, and I actually wrote a paper about kind of the design principles that make up a storyline. So if anybody is interested in kind of really getting into some of the more meaty details about storylines, they can check out our paper called Storyline Units, an instructional model to support coherence from the student's perspective. And in this paper, we actually describe four routines that support coherence from the student's perspective. We talk about something called the anchoring phenomenon routine, the navigation routine, putting pieces together routine, and problematizing. And these really kind of describe like how the classroom works to kind of support those ideas that research is saying that are so crucial for student learning. And really, the exciting thing, too, is we're finding that curriculum that uses storylines as an instructional model, really engaging students in relevant and authentic science practices and processes. And there have been people reporting, like, for example, this is from a curriculum director in Connecticut that says that we they've seen a dramatic increase in their science scores in addition to students seeking career opportunities in STEM as a result of using storyline curriculum units. That's awesome to hear. I, I want to kind of move toward closing out here with a kind of a fun question for you. You've talked to us a lot about this idea of digging in past the surface level to what's going on underneath, even in some of the things we see in everyday life. So what's a phenomenon that you've seen recently that caused you to generate a lot of questions that made you wonder? This is a fun one. We actually, our family did take a trip to Butternut Lake in northern Wisconsin, and there was a lot of horseflies up there. So people who are maybe are not familiar with a horsefly, they have biting, sucking mouth parts, which means their mouth parts are like little knives that basically land on you and they like chop up your skin and they like make the animal bleed. And then they have a straw that like sucks up all the blood and it's like super, you know, painful if they bite you. And we're going to have to put a warning on this episode, Tara. No. <laughs> so anywho, my, um, my son was really, really, really scared of these horseflies around and like, you know, he was getting like, oh my gosh, is there going to be horseflies? And so we're like, okay, it's okay. We're like, okay, let's go out on the paddle boat, you know, cause the horseflies are kind of like, oh man, I'm like, let's go out on um, on the paddle boat and then my other son loves to fish so he took his fishing pole so he's on the back like trying to cast around us and you know I'm pumping and I'm pumping with my other son and we're going and um then all of a sudden though this horse fly like following us and my son's getting all we're like oh my gosh oh my gosh and then all of a sudden we see these dragonflies that like start coming around and then it felt like the horse fly was circling and then the dragonfly was circling and then all of a sudden, like the the horse flies like seem to not be around there. And and I'm we're like we kept going. We're like, okay, I'm like, well, the horse flies are gone. It's okay. And then we go and then you know, we went out again on the paddle boat and kind of get some of the horse fly follow. And then the dragon flies are around and like the horse flies seem to go away. And we felt like they were like our little guardian angels like on this boat. And you can but I'm like, what are they hunting? Like we just had so many 
wonderings about like what is going on like is there something on the boat that one is like like we know the horse flies are probably trying to bite us like we know that part but like the horse fly dragonfly dynamic was very interesting like why were the dragonflies like soaking our boat are they hunting those guys like what's going on there it was it was i don't know the answer <laughs> i'm still wondering about that <laughs> i love that yeah, it's just, it's so fascinating to see those little things in the world that we didn't see before. And even as science teachers to just dig into that more and start to become more curious and appreciative of, of nature ourselves. And to realize how much we don't understand too, like makes the world seem so much bigger. Yeah, that curiosity. So, so with that, um, Tara, thank you very much for joining us. This has been a terrific conversation and hope we can talk again soon. Awesome. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks for having me. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SciEdPod or send us an email at unpackeverythingpod at gmail.com. Our music is Rainbows by Scott Buckley.